0: I'm a free black man, hold up my head black man Beautiful black man, I don't ever feel nice man I love your brother black man, then chase your dreams black man
1: And get that green black man, we the original man What's going on everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son I'm your host Iron Mike Steadman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business In the following episode, I finally managed to close out the Always Faithful series, where I share my experience as an African-American infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps. Talking about this material has been physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausting for me. With that being said, I'm happy to share it with you all. Between this episode and the three previous ones, I've logged over 10 hours of audio on my Marine Corps experience, which is both humbling and amazing at the same time. For me, this series has been very therapeutic, and I hope you've been able to learn from it as much as I have. After recording and releasing the five-hour behemoth, that is episode 22, where I detail my Afghan war experience and discuss getting relieved in combat, I knew I needed some support up for this final episode of the series. In order to assist me, I brought back my brother from another mother, Mikoto Yoshida, from episode 18, Confessions of an Asian American. Miko interviews me about what it was like returning home from Afghanistan after being relieved, how I managed to cope, and what led to my return to the battalion after a brief stint with the Marine Corps boxing team. I confessed to Miko that I felt I didn't have what it took to lead Marines anymore and how I may or may not have been suffering from some form of post-traumatic stress ultimately resulting in a fear of leading again. Despite it all, I managed to push through the shame and embarrassment and ultimately rebuild myself while simultaneously helping others. The truth is, none of that would have happened if it wasn't for one amazing company commander and a peer group of lieutenants who helped me regain my courage. If you've been following me this far, this is an episode you don't want to miss. I can assure you, it's also not five hours either. As always, thank you for spending your time with me, and I hope you enjoy the show. And we are live. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of my show. I can't believe y'all listened to that five-hour podcast. <laughs> When I recorded it and I let it go, I was like, I don't care if anybody's listening to it. I got to get this out. But lo and behold, man, a lot of y'all have listened to it and you've sent me feedback and I really appreciate you. And uh, I have no desire to do another five hour podcast at this point. But I do intend to wrap up this Always Faithful series. But uh, like I have said in previous episodes, talking about this stuff is very challenging for me, particularly on solo episodes. So once again, I had to call some support up. But this time I brought my brother from another mother, Mr. Mikoto Yoshida, from the Confessions of an Asian-American episode. What's going on, Miko? What's
0: going on, Mike? Thanks for having me.
1: I appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming on. You always got my back, man. A lot of people don't know. We talk. (laughs) We make a habit of checking in with each other at least every week or so. And I feel like um, it's it's really impactful for me just be able to have the kind of conversations we have. Absolutely, man. What were your thoughts on uh, the last episode?
0: Well, I was, <laughs> I was surprised that it was five hours. I thought you, you maybe had a hot mic and you just, you know, they did your two hours and, and then there was silence or you snoring or whatever, but um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think you have the ability to make your unique story something that everybody can relate to, um, at least in the very small microcosm of Marine Corps, you know, deployment to Afghanistan. Like everything that you talked about, there's in some way, shape or form, I think everybody that's been there can have uh, a piece to relate to. And I think that was really awesome. Um, and I also think, you know, you talked about a really difficult subject that I've literally never heard anybody talk about before. So um, certainly appreciated the honesty and the and the vulnerability. I think for me, it was
1: a sense of like the first time I did that episode with Colonel Hobbs, because I sit down with Colonel Hobbs to record that the first time and I was getting lost in the memories you know Mm -hmm. while he's watching me and i'm trying to like and you hear the episode i'm trying to put timelines and stuff together and it just felt i just felt very like i don't call it insecure with him watching but just in a sense i felt like i was rambling which is why i had to redo that episode and i tried to do it like four or five times and then finally when i got down and i was like an hour in i was like i'm not starting over and i'm just gonna you heard me Y'all y'all hear me say push on the show. And that's exactly what I did, man. I pushed and I was like, I'm going to finish this because I don't want to have to record this again. And also, I was so deep into it. I felt like it'd be a good reference point for anything I did moving forward. Mm -hmm. And it's come out to be like, that's exactly what it is. Because my Marines start texting me. They're like, no, sir, you had this wrong. We were actually there. But all of us kind of start putting it together. And they were letting me know a a lot of stuff that I said was, in fact, true. Um, And just kind of helping tighten it up. Um, And uh, it was really impactful for me to be able to do that. And now I have that piece of evergreen content that lives and breathes. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's really important for people too, right? Because a lot of us are so far removed now, at least in time. And yet when we go back and we try to piece it back together and people put us on the spot to say, Hey, tell me, you know, what happened in Afghanistan? Like, it's not that easy, you know, as, as evidenced by your podcast. So I think that was a good... And you talked about that while you were talking about it, which is even better, right? So um, that was another you know, t- takeaway that I got. Um, it was just this, this uh, kind of grasping for, for our memories and putting things together and reminding ourselves what happened. And then furthermore, kind of bringing that community back in to like share those stories, which I think is also important.
1: Yeah, when I started this podcast, man, my goal was to drop an episode like every week. And when I first started, I was doing that. I was disciplined. But then once I started hitting the personal stuff, I was like, I was like, this stuff was hard to talk about. Yeah. And I found myself not excited to sit down at the mic. But one thing about me, man, I realized when I started talking about that stuff, just the amount of support. People start reaching out to me and saying that they had never heard the story of a black Marine officer. But yet we had these similar trends. I'm talking about colonels and everybody else. And so I just kind of felt obligated to finish what I started. And a big hump for me was that last episode. And that's why it was five hours, but I really appreciate you all for listening and uh, just, you know, listening to this platform, man, and spreading the message. Outside of the podcast, I've been growing my nonprofit arm, got a lot of work we're doing with Ironbound Boxing, as many of you know, here in the city of Newark. Um, And it's just been a great to be able to do that. And I appreciate you all out there for supporting that. And uh, you know, really I'm just working on a, a, another venture, I'm going to make the announcement probably on the last episode of this season to kind of let y'all know what I've been working on. If you follow me on social media, you probably already have a little uh, insight into it. But this really was developed over the course of this season and then just, you know, pivoted in the pandemic and just a lot of self-awareness. But I'll be making an announcement about that at the end of the season. But uh, one thing we got to do is we got to close out this Always Faithful series, man. I think today is the day. And uh, hopefully we can we can wrap it up and uh, talk about how I was able to know come back from Afghanistan and and build myself up and so what I'll do is and I got my man Yoshi here watching my back but what we got to do Yoshi we both got to give our confessions and uh, I'll go ahead and go first and I'm gonna talk about it in the show but there's gonna come a point where I get pulled back into my unit first Time 8th Marines and the battalion XO calls me in the office and he asked me point-blank he says do you have what it takes to leave Marines again and In my mind, I was like, nope, I'm I'm good, have no desire. I was like, I don't have what it takes. I'm done with this, I've played this game before. Um, I gave him my all, I don't wanna, excuse me, I don't wanna do it anymore. I don't wanna go through that that hell again, you know, of being a Marine officer, you know, feeling ostracized and having to deal with the shame of Afghanistan. And even though I said this in my head, what actually came out of my mouth was when I looked dead out of his eyes and I said, absolutely. Because here's the reality of it. <laughs> At the end of the day, I was a three-time national boxing champion, Naval Academy grad, Marine infantry officer. I could not say those words. You know, even though I wanted to, deep down in my soul, I wanted to be done with it. Who I am as a person, as a being, I couldn't do it. And so I looked in the eyes and I said, absolutely. Even though I was terrified of leading again. And I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that. What about you? What's your confession?
0: So my confession is, um, on mental health. I think that I have severely underestimated the, not only the importance, um, but the, um, ubiquitousness of mental health, um, issues across the Marine Corps. And, um, and, 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 you know, in general people, but, uh, Particularly, I'm, I'm having a lot of conversations with my friends who are struggling with it. Um, and it's funny because I've known these guys for a long time and it's not until I tell them my own you know, struggles and my own um, kind of issues that they start to open up. And it turns out that you know, almost all the Marines that I know have either had been on medication or have sought therapy or having you know, other sorts of, um, um, issues with, uh, mental health. And, uh, I'm so far removed from Afghanistan and the Marine Corps, but it's only, it's only now that I realize it's a, it's a really important thing. And the way that I look at it is, you know, it's like having a personal trainer, like your brain doesn't have to be broken in order for it to be better. You can have, uh, conversations about how, how your mental health is and, and improve on it. Um, And I just never really understood that. I always thought that seeking mental health help was a sign of weakness. It was a sign of, um, you know, I I don't have it all together. And at the end of the day, it was, you know, to your point, it was like, I I just wasn't being honest with myself, you know? Um, And I go back to that point where you made on the last podcast of your CEO tells you to come outside and you're like, man, let me fucking step on this ID, you know? And like, I've been there, man. I know exactly what that, what that feels like. And I think a lot of Marines do and it's not healthy. You know what I mean? Like to, to, to wish for your own death um, is not healthy, but we, we, we've been there and done that. And I think um, it's just a good thing to, to know that um, we're all human and we all think like that and that we can talk about it. So Yeah. That's my confession is, is I underestimated it, but now I appreciate it. And I think, you know, going forward, um, I try to remind myself, myself and my friends that, um, if they need help, they should get it. Well,
1: I appreciate you sharing that. And I'll tell you, as I've been telling this story and I'm kind of going back and looking at stuff, I've never really said like a PTSD and all that kind of stuff. I thought I never struggled from it, but then I'm starting to think about like how terrified I was of leading, you Mm -hmm. know, and how I used to have like, And I'm, I have flashbacks of when I was standing in front of my platoon, my new platoon, I would see my old platoon and the anxiety that came from that. Maybe that was, I don't know, but at least I'm, I'm, I'm old enough now to kind of look back at some of that stuff and be like, yo, maybe there were a little bit of issues there. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I will say, thankfully, one thing that, and I credit this to boxing, you know, anytime I was getting ready for a fight, nationals, whatever, or even just going to brigades, man, I quit drinking. I started running. And I just got like, man, I'm about to win this fucking tournament, and I got to be like Iron Mike Tyson. You know, I got to be like Evander Holyfield. I yeah. got to be focused. When I came back from Afghanistan, I knew I had to fight. So I didn't touch the bottles. <laughs> I didn't touch nothing. And mm-hmm. so that's just kind of always been within me. And so anytime I feel like I'm up against something, I kind of go back to the basics, which is boxing, my road work, you know, training, and, and that's one of going to be one of the things that helps me, you know, get through this. But uh, before we continue with Always Faithful, What I want to do is I want to give a shout out to our sponsors. I know I didn't do it on the last episode because I was like, five hours is enough. Let's get this over and done with. But I want to show some love now. So first, I want to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, I got to give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing a nonprofit organization that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education and employment opportunities to inner city youth and young adults. Boom. 2 badass brands both started by African-American Marine officers that are supporting the culture that are showing y'all out there that we can start dope businesses and lift as we climb. So be sure to check out dope coffee and go visit our website, ironboundboxing.org and learn about all the amazing stuff we're doing to support the community. All right, Yoshi, I'm ready to keep, I'm ready to keep it moving, man. And we're going to go ahead and title this episode. I think it's going to be the final episode of this Always Faithful series, but we're going to call it Leaders Create Leaders, because I will tell you, man, when I think about like what really kind of got me out of the Afghanistan slump, you know, the failure and, you know, the feeling cheated when I first, when I got back was, man, I just had, I had a really great company commander. That helped me find my confidence again, but even more so, man, I had peers that I served with that really helped me be the best version of myself. And I, I goes back to the episode number one, when I talked about it was, you know, when I first came into the Marine Corps, like I'm always trying to do stuff on my own. Like I have a Ronin samurai on my back. So it makes it hard for me to date sometimes, you know, my girlfriend, she knows all the challenges we go through. Cause I'm so used to being up against it alone. And when I graduated, man, um, I kind of wanted to be my own man in the Marine Corps. And so I had distanced myself from, you know, the Naval Academy peers and going through, you know, TBS and IOC and getting to the fleet. But man, let me tell you, man, my Naval Academy brothers underneath me, right? Because by the time we would serve together again, you know, they were just coming out of to IOC, whereas mm-hmm. I was back from Afghanistan. So we had that gap year. And, uh, but man, they really kept me up, man. And uh, that's why I like to say leaders create leaders. And I think it works both ways. It's like the peer leadership and then also that senior leadership, and it can be uh, very impactful.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think maybe it's good to reorient everybody after the five hours, but, you know, I think you left off essentially, you know, you talked, you told, you told a story about getting relieved. You got kind of attached to another platoon as like a a random Lance Lieutenant, as I say, um, which, you know, I know is, is tough, but talk to me, maybe we can kind of ease into this with the transition from there back home um, as your first kind of opening for this?
1: Yeah, so after I got relieved, I, uh, you know, we finished the op. I had to go get sent to the battalion commander up at a place called Kajaki. So the Kajaki was like the top portion of our AO in Afghanistan area of operation for United military. And I spent about a month up there. And I didn't say this on the last episode, but you know, I only had a month left in country. And when I got sent to Kajaki, now I was kind of like biting my time as like an ops kind of guy. Um, they had me as like the guy handing out money to to like build $50,000 schools. And we, mm-hmm. Just crazy stuff. But man, I'll tell you, man, I was terrified to go out on patrol. Yeah. Like, like I you know how you you get safe. You feel kind of safe. Right. Like as long as I was with my Marines and my squads, um, I felt good, man. It felt like, you know, you were protected. But man, I, I was always thinking like, man, now that I'm not with them, I'm about to get fucking blown up, <laughs> you know. Like now's the time, you know. Yeah. I'm gonna get blown up, so I had to deal with that, um, that fear of not wanting to go out with another unit, you know. Mm. Um, but I got over it, you know. I only had a little bit of time left, and then I ended up coming back to the states, and you know, I had to fly out of Afghanistan with my unit. You know, yeah. what I mean? like I wasn't in charge of them anymore, but I had to fly back on the flight. Uh, with them. I had to ride the bus back to Lejeune with them. You know, all the home people, all the people are there, like meeting them, friends and family. But like the way I did it, man, when I came home, man, I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to talk to my family. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, y'all. I had a woman I met on like plenty of fish meet me when I got back. (laughs) (laughs) She was my girlfriend for a little bit. You know, we met online while I was over there, but it was just that sense of like, I don't know. I don't know if I was like pretending like my life was moving on or whatever, but I just kind of came back and just like hit the ground running. And I wanted out of battalion. I wrote orders to the Marine Corps boxing team. Had got them. I started that process while I was in Afghanistan before I left. And when I got back, man, that was the plan. I went straight to battalion. I was like, look, I went out of battalion. I'm gonna go to the Marine Corps boxing team, just like the surrey told me. And uh at that time too, that was when I got that fit rep I mentioned. That mm-hmm. Afghanistan fit rep, which made me just fucking wanna vomit. Um, tell me, tell
0: me a little bit more about about that, and maybe explain to some people that how that works. Because the combat fitness fitness report is a very significant thing in a Marine Corps officer's career, right? So,
1: a fitness report in general. So you're always getting mm-hmm. ranked against your peers. You know, it's just like it's a thing, right? You get ranking, and it's in the professional world too. But I just feel like it was amplified for Afghanistan because when you come back from Afghanistan and you have a, I got bottomed out. So basically, I got. Like a low score. I failed at everything. I forgot what it was like. Was it is it B or something? I don't know.
0: Yeah, A or B is like. Basically it said I sucked
1: mm-hmm. on paper and then it gave justifications for why I sucked on paper without giving context of any of the stuff I mentioned in the episode before. Like, oh, Lieutenant Steadman um didn't LD on time. It doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about Lieutenant Steadman got vehicles the day of the op, mounted them with machine guns and ld you know, 48 hours after getting back from another Hilo op, right? And yeah. one of the things that is always challenging for me as a leader, even to this day, is understanding, you know, like I'm a high performer. I try to do the best I can with what I have. But also, are we getting put in the best positions at time, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just think that was just such an aggressive timeline and stuff as I look back. Um, but not having any context of those things, like in the fit rep, you know, when it talked about how even when I got relieved, didn't mention anything about his platoon commander, his platoon sergeant hit an IED. You know, first day of the op, Tennis Devon was out there with three squad leaders hooking and jabbing, solo in unknown territory, you know. And I think it's just, a, it's just a, such a high expectation we have for us, but for me to, like, sacrifice so much, you know, and like the long nights, man, the blood, sweat and tears, literally, and to have nothing to show for it. I just want to fucking, I was, I fucking hate it. I get amped up just thinking about it. And I yeah. ended up writing a rebuttal. I did write my rebuttal. And I think it just got where it was like, it just was just bottomed out. It was like a nicer way of saying I sucked um, right. on deployment. Um, but at that point, I didn't want anything more to do with the Marine Corps. I was like, I'm gonna go box, man. I'm gonna go to, Puerto Rico for like 30 days, enjoy my leave, come back and join the Marine Corps boxing team and keep it moving. I'm done with this.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that's part of the failure of the system because you're right. Like when you get a, a fit rep, that's either, it, it's basically meant to put you in the bottom, right? So they never talk, like you had five more months of deployment that they could have talked about all the things that you've done. And, and yet in these types of fit reps, like they just... Try to make you look like the worst person ever, you know, and it's it's terrible because it makes you check out or want to check out, and that seems like ex- exactly what happened. So, um, you know, I'm sorry that that happened. I think it was a really shitty situation. Um, but so, tell me, you know, I, I'm kind of curious as to you. You said he transitioned right to boxing, but like, I think everybody remembers coming back from Afghanistan the first time, and you have like a twofer, right? Because you're coming back with the relief. And you're coming back alone and like, but, but also together with your platoon and usually as a celebratory, you know, event and people are supposed to be happy, but how, I, talk to me about how you felt, like, what, what did you feel like when you came back to, from Afghanistan for the first time? I felt shame.
1: I felt a deep sense of shame, that kind of shame. We didn't want to look at people in the face. Mm-hmm. kind of deal. And you know how when people are going through stuff, it's almost like they don't show you, but you kind of know they're going through something and they yeah. try to compensate in other areas. And I had started a brand actually at the time, Fighting Mojo. If for my friends out there, y'all probably remember it, but that yeah. came out of Afghanistan. It was just a fitness brand. It was a blog, but it just something to keep my mind thinking about the future, you know, mm-hmm. create a sense of excitement. But for me, it was this sense of like, I didn't want to go home I didn't want to talk about Afghanistan. And I really just wanted a sense of like, I don't know, man. I feel like I was bouncing emotion because I was angry too. Yeah. Like, it was a weird, like, hell, <laughs> you, know, you talk about crazy Marine Corps stuff. You know, how, like you're sitting in the PX, right? And every PX is just, every counter is just backed up. And you're just like getting anxious and you just want to pull out a an Uzi and just, <laughs> 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 you know, how you're thinking, you're like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just crazy stuff. Not that I was going to shoot up a PX, mm-hmm. but just in a sense of everything makes you agitated. And if yeah. someone wanted to talk about Afghanistan, I just wanted to fight. Yeah, Like yeah. if you brought up to me and implied anything about me in that time, I just wanted to fight you, mm-hmm. right? And But luckily, man, you know what? One thing I've done, and I think it's a credit to who I am today, is I have managed to always surround myself with like the best of people. And in the previous episode, I talked about an officer who I didn't always do the best job of having his black back and he was a black infantry officer who was in my battalion right was the the, you know we just I just didn't want to be the blind leading the blind we both had targets on our backs but let me tell you man when I came back from Afghanistan I leaned on that brother and he was there to catch me and uh, till this day man that is my one of my ride or dies for sure and leaning on that and then leaning on my frat brothers and stuff but just kind of you know, I had to get me a support network around me and I had to start boxing again. That was the other thing, too, because just had all this frustration and, and resentment inside me and uh, just had to figure out how to balance
0: it out. Yeah, yeah. So I know the the Marine Corps boxing team story is pretty unique and interesting. So maybe we can <laughs> we can dive right into it and like tell me about how that worked out. It didn't work out.
1: <laughs> that's, that's funny. That's what he's talking about, man. I don't know. If, look, I got a group of friends. We always say fate isn't exorable. Is it fate isn't exorable? Mm-hmm. I thought I had my out, man. Yeah. I'm like, yo, Marine Corps boxing team. Got my papers. Boom, I'm out. Bye, peace. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I go to I I go on um, vacation with the girl I was dating at the time for playing fish, and we go to Puerto Rico, right? And I'm in Puerto Rico like freaking like three weeks. It was a decent amount of time. Right. And I'm just hanging out there, just having a ball. Oh, man, I stayed at a buddy's house was in the Coast Guard. And literally while I'm out there, USA Boxing decides to cancel, decides to get rid of headgear. Mm-hmm. So You know, the headgear that people wear when they spar and compete in they're like in competitions, they're no longer going to do headgear. And this was at a time when the Marine Corps was all about like, you know, I had all these reservations about PTSD and traumatic brain injuries and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like on vacation, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, man, they canceled the Marine Corps boxing team. I gotta go back to battalion. (laughs) I was like, for the love of God, no, anything but that. Um, But because I already had orders over there, I ended up coming back from Puerto Rico and they were basically saying like, oh, the team is in limbo, whatever. And so I basically just (laughs) sat at a computer for like a few months, pretty much what it comes down to. I was at headquarters and support battalion just doing like OIC things out of sight, out of mind from the battalion, um, hoping and trying to get this Marine Corps boxing team stood back up. So I was meeting with key leaders and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. They were they said I was the OIC of the boxing team, even though there was no team. Mm. Um, but I was, trying to, <laughs> I was trying to do everything I could to get this thing stood back up. So I was like, I was in the gym every day, training myself, joined the gym out in town and was just trying to see what the process was. But it was really just like this limbo. And for all you officers out there in these purgatories, you know what they're like.
0: So when or how did the battalion start pulling you slowly back, or was it like a? How did that happen when when you realize like your fate is now back at the battalion? And how did you feel during that time?
1: So this was uh, I, this was over the course of like I think it was like eight months, right? So I came back in July. You know, we went on leave, got back in August, and then so I was gone from like August to. I want to say like March, maybe. So that's maybe more than eight months. I don't know. I'm a grunt. I can't count. Um, but what ended up happening was I got <laughs> Battalion XO, you know, the battalion rotates, they get new officers in, the CO left, the new XO came in, all the lieutenants, the first lieutenants left, and so there was this big changeover in battalion. New battalion XO comes up and he's like looking at his list of lieutenants, and he sees this one. <laughs> you know, what happened was. They they, they had they're like, yo, you got to send a lieutenant to uh, Georgia on one of them Georgian deployments for like, was it like a year and a half or something crazy? Yeah.
0: yeah. And for like, those just yeah. just tell them what Georgia is, because people think different things. right? Yeah. Georgia is is it a third world country. Borderline. Right? I mean, it's a former Soviet. Yeah. Block country. Yeah.
1: It's a former Soviet bloc country. And so what they were doing is they were sending advisors over to Georgia um, to train the Georgian army and then deploy to Afghanistan again with them. And so the battalions always get hit with these billets where they got to send lieutenants. And then all of a sudden, you know, the b- new battalion XO, he's looking at his roster of lieutenants and he's got like his ones in the battalion. And all of a sudden there's just like lieutenant standing <laughs> down, like <laughs> off in the bottom corner, you know, black sheep written over it. And he's like, who the hell is this lieutenant stepman? And so then he ends up um, going ask all these other lieutenants around battalion. They're like, oh, yeah, he was in Afghanistan with us. He got relieved. um, blah, blah. Blah. And he chooses me for that, uh, uh, Georgian deployment. Of
0: course, of course he does.
1: So I find out, like, I get an email one day and they're like, you got 30 days, you're deploying at the end of the month. And I'm just like, I just want to fucking kill myself. (laughs) I was like, I was like, I survived that. You look, I got through that deployment. I was sure that if I went on this deployment with the Georgian army, I might as well get blown up. I just knew it. I was like, this is it. And so again, I I joke about it, but maybe that is that like trauma stuff. But like, I just remember feeling like so helpless, you know, Mm -hmm. that sense of like, you have no control over your life. And now they're gonna ship me back to this war zone after I'd already went through what I went through. I'm like, this is, this can't happen. Like, I don't wanna go back to Afghanistan, but I got orders. They're like, yo man, you got 30 days, go to SIF, go do all that kind of stuff. And so that's what started my interaction back with Battalion.
0: Yeah. And just, it's not a, uh, what's the right word? It's not a a wanted position to be the one guy from the battalion to be sent out. So this is definitely not, you know, it's, it's almost as if the hits keep on coming and I, I feel really bad, but I wish, you know, the leadership had a little bit more wherewithal to understand and, and the EXO to like examine the context in which, you know, you're, you're where you are, but clearly he didn't do that. And they're like, well, here's a random Lieutenant, like let's send his ass to Georgia, you know? And that happens all the time, you know? Um, so how did that, so I know you didn't go to Georgia, but how did that end up changing or what happened there? Marine Corps messing
1: stuff up. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up, man. It's that sense of just being like that loss of control, man. But all of a sudden I get told I'm I'm going to Georgia, I'm like getting ready to cancel leases and do all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden it's just like, nothing happens. You know, <laughs> I just keep showing up to battalion and the see the XO is like, I don't know any information yet. Just stand by to stand by. And that's pretty much what happened until they like went away. But the problem was I had already got pulled back to battalion. So my hmm. orders were canceled from headquarters and support battalion, and Marine Corps boxing team. And now I was just back at one eight. So now I'm like Lieutenant Rifleman Steadman again. And it's like, what are they going to do with him?
0: What did you want to do at that point? Like if he, if he could pick your, tro- like if you had to stay in, but you had to do something, you couldn't do the Marine Corps boxing team. Like where was your head? Anything but an infantry battalion.
1: <laughs> like, swear to God, anything but an infantry battalion, man, because it's, I don't know, man. It's like, even I talk to people now, it's like their Marine Corps experience is so different from life in an infantry. You know, I mm-hmm. would meet like second lieutenants who already did their little EWS and got all their quals and jump school and dive school and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, how did y'all have time to do this <laughs> stuff? Like, I was in the field like we're in the field over weekends and all this kind of stuff. So in my mind though, I'm thinking of a recreation of my first workup and Mm the challenge. I'm literally vision. My only experience at this point was like my first company commander. It was the rifle range. It was all that kind of stuff. And now I feel like I'm about to go through that process again. And so I want to avoid it at all costs. And I thought the Marine Corps box team was, was going to be my way out. But at this point I just felt, I just felt helpless, man. I didn't know what, I, I just knew I did not want to be an infantry battalion.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, So, you know, your theme about leaders, build leaders, talk to me about the next leader and how that, how that came about for you.
1: So, like I said, during my confession, at one point, the battalion XO pulls me in office and he's like, Tennis Steadman, I've been talking to the platoon sergeants, I've been talking to some of your peers, they say you're a pretty good Marine officer, you know? And he's like, you know, to be honest, I don't need lieutenants in Georgia. I need lieutenants with some experience that I can help, you know, get this battalion together and help lead the next generation of young leaders and uh I could I could use you. And so he's like, "Do you think you have what it takes to leave Marines again?" I'm like, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> in my head, I'm like, "Nope, I'm done. Appreciate you, bro, but nope." Uh but obviously I couldn't say it. So I said, "Absolutely." And literally it's like out of a movie. He's like, "I'm going to talk to the battalion commander. Can't promise anything. I'm going to talk to the battalion commander." So I leave the office. And I'm just like, man, I'm in limbo again. Once again, your fate is in other people's hands. And Mm -hmm. I go to my house the next day. And at this point, I was living with that lieutenant I was talking about. I'm going to get him on here at one point. Um, But I'm at my house. I get a call. And my buddy was actually my buddy, the one I was staying with. He was like, hey, the battalion commander wants to talk to you. He's like, where are you? I was like, I'm at home. He's like, you need to come into battalion again. So I literally come in battalion and... I go to see battalion commander. Battalion commander, he doesn't even let me in his office. I go to his door, right? I knock. We'd like do this knocking thing. Permission to come aboard, sir. He's like, Lieutenant Steadman, get your shit. You're getting a rifle platoon. That's literally what he said, like verbatim. And I fucking start having PTSD. I swear, he got on the spot. Like, I just was like, the world was just shifting again, and I was just like. It's happening again. It's happening again. Like, this felt like the Twilight Zone. Like, I want to pull my hair out. And literally, that day, he's like, Get your shit. You're getting a rifle tune. He's like, Go downstairs and check in the Bravo company. You know, mm-hmm. my, my pack and stuff, I haven't touched. I haven't been to the field in like eight months. Like, a brother hasn't been to the field. We just kind of, <laughs> we get sucked. You know? Yeah. So I'm just like, This can't be happening. This can't be happening. And literally, like I walk downstairs to go check in the Bravo Company, and of course they're doing like a confirmation brief. Everyone's sitting around the table, and I walk in like you know I just saw a ghost. And it's funny because my buddy, who's a good friend of mine, Lieutenant Tom Payne, he kind of knows my situation, and he kind of sees he once he sees me walk in the battalion, he starts cheesing. He's <laughs> like, "Yes, yo, aha!" Uh-huh. And I'm just thinking, like, this is terrible, you know. But I got pulled back in the battalion, man, and. uh, I was I was literally terrified. I'll be completely honest with y'all. I was terrified because this is me at a point where now I got a little experience. You know, cause part of us is, I think when you're kind of becoming an officer, when you want to become a leader, especially a combat leader, there's this sense of, do I have what it takes mm-hmm. you know, to do it at the highest level? And so part of your journey is figuring it out for yourself and your peers that you do have what it takes. And I was didn't have what it takes, right? or at least I was made to feel that way. I made mistakes, right, it happens. So now I have to lead knowing that I'm not invincible, that I'm flawed and everyone else knows it too. And I still had to step in that environment and that was what I was going into. And oh, by the way, the last time I stood in front of a platoon of Marines was in combat in Afghanistan before we stepped out on that op. And now you're giving me a whole other set of, of platoon of Marines.
0: Yeah. And, and not to mention, you know, whatever version of stories that they heard about you, right? Like, there's no way to know what version is out there. And, um, you know, the Marine Corps scuttlebutt is never super accurate. <laughs> so, you know, they probably have stories about Mike, you know, Lieutenant Mike Steadman, st- you know, shooting a saw from the hip, you know, in Afghanistan, doing crazy shit or whatever. So I, I know the feeling, um, not, not necessarily because I've been there myself, but reputation precedes you, right? And that reputation is never accurate, you know? Um, and that's a shitty thing to walk into. So I feel you. Um, how was the welcome to that to that platoon for you?
1: Well, the weird part was for me was uh, a lot of my Marines were still in the battalion now. Mm. So they had kind of moved up. You know, those PFCs, now they're like the Lance Corporals and they're the, the fire team leaders and stuff. And so I walked back and then all of a sudden, like I was getting ready to go meet, the platoon, you know, because they were like in formation or something, like all the platoons were out there. So I'm getting ready to walk out there. And then I hear the Marines like, oh, that's Lieutenant Stamos then. <laughs> I literally had a couple of Marines walk up and like give me a hug. Hmm. And I was just like, is this? It just felt weird to me. You know, since yeah. because, you know, the whole time you're kind of going through your stuff. Right. Obviously, they're probably still going through their stuff. But you all do kind of have this bond and you did share this experience together and there's nobody else is gonna kind of understand that. But it was pretty humbling when I came back and like I went to shake a Marine's hand and he gives me a hug. Uh, uh-huh. And I was just like, wow. But I guess it's like, yo, at the end of the day, we did do a workup for like a year, deployed Afghanistan. Ah. And so we'd been through some stuff. But I just remember just, oh man, the gaze. I just remember the gaze. And it was mm-hmm. just what you were talking about. What are the Marines thinking? Oh, just them got relieved in Afghanistan. Now, like that stigma and how does that process go? And, you know, it was just, and it was just I was shot. I was yo. I'm telling y'all, I was shot
0: as a leader. I was shot. Um mm-hmm. but I still went out there. Awesome, man. Um so you're a Bravo company now. Um, brand new, like <laughs> second award platoon commander, as they say, I guess. Um what was the next what was on the the docket for you guys? What what was your what was your tasking?
1: Well, the first thing was I had to meet my CO too. Let me forget about that. And, uh, and you gotta remember at this point, this is my third time, right? First time I I had one platoon, then they shipped me to the rifle range. Then I come back, I get this platoon. Then I freaking, you know, get released (laughs) in Afghanistan. Like, why the fuck are they giving me a platoon again? Like, leave me alone. You know, really. But I get this coming commander, man. He's like, I don't care what happened in Afghanistan. He's like, you got your square one with me and just do your best, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, that was kind of like his spiel. He kind of... I went in that office and he definitely made me feel like he was giving me a fair shake that he was starting from square one with me. And I was like, okay, but I was still kind of like, I don't really believe you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, cause at this point, my experience to be quite frank, just from my time at TBS and now in the fleet and everything, man, it just felt like a lot of captains were dicks to be honest. Um, yes. and you know, Marine Corps, you know, we talk about empathetic leaders. It's like, Oh, uh, my office, you know, come talk to me anytime. But like, half the commanders, man, you don't want to go talk to them. You don't want to talk to them on your off time on your free time, let alone when you're going through stuff. So I had heard this spiel before and I just didn't believe it at this point, you know? And I'm just like, just let me, you know, bite my time. And I'm like, I'm thinking like, here we go again, you know? Um, and we jumped right into the workup, man. And this time I think our workup was slated for like Okinawa but I don't know if we knew yet when I first got there, we were still trying to figure out what our next move was going to be. But man, we just jumped right into like going to the field and everything.
0: And and so now third time around, you know, you're leading Marines, you're giving orders, you're doing all the things that a platoon commander has to do. Tell me kind of about, you, you mentioned it a little bit about the fear of of having to do this again. How did that manifest? And did you show it to your Marines or how did it, how did it come, come
1: about? I think the first two weeks I was like hiding from my Marines a little bit. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You know, cause it's like the company was like organizing like company PT and all that kind of stuff. And I was doing stuff to like duck out of it. You know, like oh, I got to go to this point where I can't make that. But I was really like trying to duck it, you know, cause I just was like, I was, I think I was having, I won't say call it PTSD, but I was having something because I just knew that. I was having trouble being in front of Marines that weren't my Marines in Afghanistan. If that makes sense. And you know, you have my, I could tell you my squad leaders, Afghanistan, I had Nelson, I had cheek, you know, I started in Trimble and then you get this new squad of squad leaders, Hungry. You know, I think it was, um, and I can't, like, I remember the names more of my Afghanistan platoon than I do of that platoon. Yeah. You know? And so I think I was still seeing them in, in the, in the platoon from Afghanistan. Um and so I you know I was just I was a scared leader man I don't know how to describe it I was just I was like I don't know I was struggling mm. I was struggling not even from anything I had done I was struggling from the inaction piece Yeah yeah
0: And and how how do you think or what was the turning point for you where that confidence started to go back up if ever like how did that come about Um I
1: So the first field op we went on, right, Um, it was, you know, we went on a field op and I think I had to call in some like artificial mortars or something again. And I think a lot of Marines were like, oh, like it was a tree line. It was dark. You couldn't see stuff, you know, and we're like setting up these objectives and everything. But because of what happened before about the fires, you know, the Marines were like hitting us like, oh, he's going to get too close to the what is it called when the fire is cut off? You're a, um, uh, danger close. Don't get danger close yeah. on that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know? So I just felt like my Marines were being, everyone was real critical. I felt very self-conscious of it, even though we're just, it's basically LARPing, you know, but I just <laughs> felt very, I, I literally felt very self-conscious around that and that the mm-hmm. Marines were going to be watching because they knew, Oh, you called in this fire mission that went South and, you know, and blah, blah. blah and they were going to be questioning that. And then the other thing too was, um, briefing my order, you know, that first order and having the CEO watch. And I was like fumbling. I was like jittering, you know, doing it. And I think I just like straight up, like butchered the order, you know, mm-hmm. and to see the CEO there just kind of like writing down, you know, like taking notes, taking notes. <laughs> like I was like, Oh, I ain't gonna laugh. You know? I ain't gonna laugh. I ain't gonna make it. But what happened was, man, I'll tell you was um that height, that, that hump. We we're in the field for like five days at this point. And like all COs, it's like, oh, we're going to take Marines to the field for five days in the blazing heat in Camp Lejeune. And then at the end of it, we're going to do like a 15-mile hike out, right? (laughs) Makes no sense. So we're like, yo, man, Marines are dehydrated. Like all of my peer lieutenants, you know? And we're like, man, Marines are hydrated. I'm like, I don't know if they can make this hump. And I'm just looking at them. I'm like, boys, this is what it is. This is what these commanders do, you know? I've I've been through it before. They're like, no, this can't happen. You know, we got to... We got to say something. This isn't going to be good. I'm like, this is what it is, fellas. You know, but my boy, you know, tenant Payne, He was adamant about it. He's like, we're going to talk to CEO. So I'm just thinking that he's going to tell us to go fuck off. I'm beyond yeah. at this point. But the CEO comes in and they're like, sir, I think we need to uh, drop packs. You know, he's like, I think it's too hot. The Marines have been in the field. We need to drop packs. And he's like looking at us, kind of shaking his head. And then he goes by one by one and asks us what we each think. Hmm. And I'm thinking, like, this is a trick. <laughs> yeah. And he, he
0: That's the right answer, right? You
1: know, like one by everybody's like, "Drop packs, drop packs, drop packs." And he gets to me. He's like, "Lieutenant Seven, what do you think?" I'm like, "Drop packs." And he's like, "I'll think about it." Very well. We drop packs. We load them in the seven ton, and um, you know, we had our we, the Marines still had to wear their flax. They had to take their Kevlars and their weapons. But he let us put the, the packs on the on the truck. And so at that point, it was that feeling of like, wow, somebody, a, a senior officer actually listened to me, like literally like took my advice. And I, I, that, I felt the power in that, you know, mm-hmm. that he actually like valued my opinion on something. And so I just remember that slight, like kind of slight shift there. And sure enough, we did that hike, fucking mass casualty. Yeah. Corbin, get the fuck Corbin up. <laughs> Man, we didn't even finish the, yo, we say, I'm pretty sure we saved the CO that day. You know, oh we didn't God. even make it back, man. It was fucking mass casualty. We didn't even make it back to battalion. You know, they mm-hmm. had to wake up the battalion commander in the middle of the night to let him know his infantry battalion—they're throwing <laughs> marines in ice buckets. Fuck, <laughs> yo, it was. Yo, they had to bus us back. You know, yeah. it was like marines hiking. You know, you know how the corporals do. You know, Marines hiking. They're like, take his pack off him. You know, take his flack off him. Run. He's carrying his flack. like, give him his Kevlar. Give him his weapon. Next thing you know, the Marine is like hiking butt naked just so he doesn't pass out. And sure enough, man, we do. We have a fucking mass casualty out there in the Camp Lejeune heat. I'm not joking. Literally, like yo, the whole company on the side of the road, they're fucking throwing them in ice buckets and everything like that. And Kazovac vehicles. And I'm pretty sure the CO got chewed out for it. You know, when he went inside, because when you get back to battalion, it literally looked like a war zone. Mm-hmm. You know, they had fucking what is it called when they're giving people the 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 uh high, the, IVs. the IV station yeah. and everything. And I'm just like, why the fuck am I back in Energy Battalion? This is the dumbest shit. But um, it was just that's what it was. Yeah, I just remembered for me, it was a sense of like the CEO asked for our pen. We gave it to him, he listened to us. Now it still turned out heinous. Um, but just him listening to me was a, was a changing
0: point. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that is a really interesting thing. Cause I've never seen that, you know, cause, cause when a CEO gets confronted by that many people, like he has to stand his ground to like maintain his authority in his mind. Right. And I think we all understand why that is, but, um, you know, listening to the the leaders at the lowest level, I think, is is the lesson here. Uh, at least that I took away, and um, I know it's sometimes hard to do, but um, it seems like that was again the the entryway into your understanding that maybe this guy's this guy's going to be okay. You know, um, in in terms of being a leader. So, talk to me about how that kind of started to progress and, you know, you talk really well about this guy. So maybe tell me a little bit about him and how your relationship started to form.
1: Just his leadership style, man. I mean, he had like, I think he had like seven kids or something. Like he was, Mm -hmm. he was like a family man. Um, But the thing was, man, I felt like I was actually part of a team at this point. And I'll tell you, like, again, I, I give credit to the CEO, but like all the lieutenants, like this core group of lieutenants, I mean, I felt like they just, we just lifted each other up, man. You know, no. I didn't feel the same sense of competition. I felt in the first, you know, my first company and right off the bat, like even the XO, the XO was a stud. I mean, this guy is still a stud to this day. Like probably one of the best human beings I've probably ever met in his ability to perform and get stuff done. But a man, I remember him coming up to me and he was genuinely curious about Afghanistan and he was asking me questions and everything. And you know, like, he was like, he's, he was XO as a, as a Lieutenant. Um, but was just crushing it. But just the, the, the way he came at me, right. It wasn't like belittling or anything like that. And I'm superior to him, right. Because I've been a lieutenant longer, but he just was like, just kind of very supportive. And then my peers, you know, it was all this sense of like, okay, you know, they're just looking out for you. It's just different. I don't know. We're all still trying to figure this out, but I definitely think the CEO kind of cultivated that environment where it wasn't about one of our platoons. It was about the entire company and if one platoon was struggling, it brought the entire company down. And so that was kind of like his mentality. And so he mm-hmm. cultivated in it's like this team like atmosphere. And another thing we joked about it, but uh, if for all my officers out there, right, you know, how you're always supposed to PT your platoon. And the CO is like, yeah, you better be PT in your platoon at least once a week or a squat platoon PT. Because when you're when you're infantry time, man, you get hit with so much shit. You know, we got to get this fucking roster done.
0: The roster got
1: done tomorrow. It's got to get done today or like nobody's going to go home and see their family over Christmas or whatever. So it's just this constant sense of, man, we always got stuff to do. You know, you got to get to the ranges. You got to do all this kind of stuff. So a lot of lieutenants were like, fuck, I'm not PTing in the morning. You know, let me get to the office. Let me use this seven and nine to get the work done. Let the Marines PT. Man, sure enough, the CO was like, he expected us to PT every morning, but he didn't just say it. Every morning he would come out of his office, hey Lieutenant Steven, where you guys going for PT? I'm like, oh, boots and youth, sir, you know, yeah, uh, <laughs> we're gonna go for a little boots and youth run, me and Lieutenant Payne here. Um, but it was just like all the time. And you could never, and I feel like deep down he knew that too. He's like, man, these lieutenants probably trying to sham this morning, PT. And if I tell them to do it, they're probably not gonna do it. I gotta go out there and they gotta make sure it happens. So that was his style. So mm-hmm. every every day, man, he would come out of his office at seven o'clock, ask us what we were doing for PT until it kind of became expectation. And then the other thing was, too, he always wanted to PT. He rotated PTing with one of the platoons mm. um, each week. Right. So that was another thing you kind of knew. But he didn't do it in a way of like, I'm telling you to do this. It was just like, I don't know, man, just kind of like, don't do what I say. Watch what I do. And yeah. kind of got that mentality, you know, from him. And then another thing, too, that I learned was, and I said this on the episode, when I was in my fucking most exhausted state in Afghanistan, I was not briefing orders, right? And that, I don't know if I'm going to call it traumatizing or whatever, but like, I basically refused to never brief, not brief an order again. And so that was another thing that I brought to the table of like, even in the most frago orders, you know, because all the time it's like, you don't need to do this order for this. I always made sure I did like an order because I was like somewhat traumatized from the experience. So I went out of my way to always like brief an order. And an order for our listeners is just like how we execute. It's like our operating procedure on a attack or anything that we do. Um, the other thing too is I'll tell you, I got vulnerable with the Marines too. And I think it was that first op that I mentioned, you know, when people were kind of watching me get close to the fires and stuff. And instead of avoiding, even with this podcast, probably. Instead of avoiding the elephant in the room, I took my Marines out to the woods, right, Um, one night, and I told them everything that happened in Afghanistan. I told Mm -hmm. them about, you know, um, my squad leaders not having their MVGs, which is why I was so – because I was hard on the Marines about doing some night training. That's what it was. We are doing some night training. I was – having my Marines, you know, use their MVGs and everybody was like half-assing it and shamming it. And I just used that as a teaching moment. And I pulled everyone in and let them know that, hey, I know you guys probably heard stories about what happened in Afghanistan. Well, this is what happened. And I'll say that, you know, my leaders didn't have MVGs on them also. And that was a failure on my part. And so this is why I'm being hard on you guys with this stuff. And I told them that. And the Marines went out and just killed the training after that. Um, Hmm. So I was kind of like easing back into it. And then another thing too was... um, I don't know, man. Infantry just throws you in the hot seat. You know, you can't hide too long because you're in the infantry battalion. You're in the f- And my CO was one of those guys, man. He loved the field. Like that was him. And so we were always in the field. And so basically, I just got the reps in.
0: Yeah. And one thing that stood out to me, Mike, um, that you were talking about, and a lot of, you know, maybe non-Marines or not even infantry or combat arms know this, but it's really lonely being a lieutenant, you know what I mean? Um, and 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 to have a core group of lieutenants, because there's only like four or five of you in a company, right? And, and maybe a little bit more in the battalion. But the point is like, number one, eyes are always on you. And you're kind of lonely out there, you know? And if you don't find a good group, it's really, really lonely, you know? And so I think the fact that, you know, the contrast that I see is that the first unit that you had, where you got told to check into your unit and then like shipped off the rifle range without even saying goodbye. Nobody checked in on you. Compared to this new group of guys who you guys are talking every day. You're like going to the CEO together. Like I think there's a big contrast there that I think is really you know important for people to understand because that support group I think is what helps me um, or helped me when I was in the Marine Corps too. Right, like having the peer group be there, have your back, and, and just even joke around with is, is is not always easy to have.
1: Yeah, and the XO man, he had this award we used to have for the field, right? And I'm probably <laughs> in trouble for saying this, I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. We had a Pink Titty Award. Right? <laughs> and the pink, the pink Titty Award was basically if you did something goofy or something in the field, right? It's not like, I don't want to call it like the lowest performer or something, but just, you know, somebody that did something a little goofy, right? Or could have done something a little better. And at the end of every op, we had to award, after we did our AAR, by like our after action of things we could have done better, things we could have improved on, we gave out the pink titty. So one of the things I got the pink titty for right off the bat was my fire plan sketch. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, and that's what I'm talking, this is what I'm talking about the CEO, man. Cause it was yeah. like, you do the pink titty award and it's like, everybody gets nominated. They're like Lieutenant Steadman and versus another Lieutenant. And then you go around and rally the points right there in front of everybody. And then like, of course the tie was like the CEO. And they're like, oh. Lieutenant Steadman. And Sarah's like, he raises <laughs> raises his hand slow. And then what ends up happening, you have to carry this thing on the next op. So that's what it was, was it was like, yo, you held it until you didn't hold it anymore. But just kind of little stuff like that, it just felt more like, and even though it was like sometimes goofy stuff, right? You made mistakes, whatever, but it still felt like you could learn, you could grow. And it goes back to what I was saying being comfortable to fail, feeling comfortable like you can fail and that you can grow and that somebody really believes in your like development and just kind of having that. And when I talk about the lieutenants, that core group, man, till this day, man, my boy, Lieutenant Payne, he's not Lieutenant Payne, he's Captain Payne now, but me and him launched an incubator over the summer called Thrive. And just like in the Marine Corps, yo, he'll call me up while we're working on this stuff, you know, like in the process of working on it. That's how he was in the fleet, so when we're writing our orders together right he's calling me up at like one two o'clock in the morning, you know, and we're leaving at like five, but just like where are you at? what are you doing? you know that kind of stuff, and feeling like you could go back and forth just that that sense of somebody pushing you versus in the first group, it felt like every fucking man for himself you yeah. know it's like who can I go to at one o'clock in the morning when I'm still thinking about what I'm going to do on this portion of the attack or whatever, or, you know, showing me this stuff. And the lieutenants, man, we used to write our training schedules together and there was no ego in it. We would sit down and be like, all right, what are you doing? What is your platoon doing? What are your platoon doing? What are you doing? And we would do it together. And it was this sense of like, and I'm learning this too. And it's like an entrepreneur. I think so many times we're taught to make up for our weaknesses, you know, like attack your weaknesses, attack your weaknesses, attack weaknesses. But sometimes you do it at the extent of limiting your strengths and so I felt like what we had in this unit was like we all had our things we were strong with, our areas we struggled with. But I felt like when we were looking after each other, you know, you could shine in your zone of genius. You know, you could play to your strengths and have people kind of watching your six and cover down on that. And being able to go to people and say, hey, man, I'm not good at this. Can I can I get some help with it? And we really had that. And it wasn't just two. Here's another thing I'll tell you is when I came back to Battalion, I implemented a couple things. One, I did a one, I did, I just now learned that this is like a strategy in life. It's called execute a 180, which means just do the opposite of what you did previously. And I saw it on Billions. If y'all ever watch Billions on uh, uh, Showtime, you know, she talks about it because there's one trader's having this issue and the psychologist who's working with the traders was just like, just do a 180. And so that's basically what I was doing when I came back. If I went left before, I just went right. And all of a sudden, they're like, good job, Lieutenant you Way to think on, you know. <laughs> when I got to attacks, you know, uh, when I got to attacks, you know, usually I would, like, try something. And Colonel Hobbs was critical of this. He's like, because it, it, it kills innovation. But at the end of the day, I was over it. I feel like I didn't have anything to prove. And I just went right. And my performance went up. And literally, I was doing just the most non-innovative approach to anything. It was just, like, play the game, like what they say. Like, I didn't fight it before I tried to fight the game you know I thought I could really be myself and I thought the Marine Corps would accept me for myself well after I realized it's not what they wanted I just did everything their way
0: hmm. it's a sad sad ending to that story no um but I, I get I get it man it's like these ranges people go through it so over and over and um, it it wears on you to try to do something different because you will get crushed for it no matter what you know what i mean like there's never a time when like you 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 went against sop and and you're you, you rewrote the sop because sop was written by you know all these people but i think you know one of the things that i just took away from what you were talking about is is this sense of support and camaraderie between lieutenants um and between between whatever your pod is you know and i think some of the impressions that we had coming out of TBS and our and our basic schools after that is like you go to work, you PT, you train your Marines, you go home, and then you're going to like read MCDP one and, you know, watch we were soldiers. Like there's like this, this, this sense of like you're committed to your job and the job, like unless you're reading a book or doing something productive towards that end, like you're failing. And I think what we miss is like this camaraderie, this, ability to lean on each other. And it, it usually grows naturally, right? Um, but I feel like especially when we first join units, like we don't see that yet. And we're just trying to awkwardly find our way through. And if you're not with the right people, it's really, really fucking hard. Um and um, so that, so that really kind of hit home for me too, because I, I remember, you know, being that guy as well, trying to fit in and, and whatnot.
1: What I'll tell um, you, what I'll tell you too is, um, and when I said I did a 180, I did a 180, right? When I first got to Lejeune, I was like, I want to live by myself. I was at IOC fucking living with like eight lieutenants. It's fucking terrible, right? Like, I don't know, man, when you're going through this stuff and your peers are ranking you low and then you got to sleep bunks with them. You're like, fuck that. I'm living by myself. So I live in the yeah. top cell. Then I was like, come back from Afghanistan. At least I had enough self-awareness. I'm like, all right, I don't need to be at this island by myself. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yo, let me get around. i moved moving in with my boy and we had a house, man. And basically I just lived close to base, right? I lived close to base. I lived in a house with five other black officers before I told y'all, I tried to, you know, socialize with my peers, go to the honky tonk, you know, at fucking Camp June with the Confederate flag out front and, drink Jack and Cokes and all that kind of stuff. I'm done doing that. I had also got into CrossFit around that time too. So before mm-hmm. I came back to Baton, I got into CrossFit and CrossFit, my, my gym out there, it was called CrossFit Seal War. Still love those guys to death to this day. They run a badass company called Soft Fleet. Check them out. Um, they became my new, basically, peer group out there. And mm-hmm. so my fun became doing CrossFit. And it was weird too, when I talk about the performance, like, oh, Lieutenant Stedman, you know, it's doing a good job. When I was when I was a second lieutenant, man, I was always fucking working. You know, I would go work during the day, come home at night, plan my lessons, you know, go back the next day, do it, rinse and repeat Work out. There was no social life. There was no nothing. Then all of a sudden I get to, you know, I'm back in Bravo Company. Yo, I'm leaving at four o'clock. Rain, sleet, hell or snow because I'm doing this 430 CrossFit class. You know, I bring my gear, whatever. I made it a priority to do it. And guess what? They were like, my performance went up. They're like, you're doing a good job. I'm like, I don't understand. I'm working way less. I'm way less bought in than I was before. And yet my performance is going up. Like what is going on here? Um, And I also don't socialize. You know, I found my peer group, just other black officers. And that's basically what I hung out with. And it's just like my performance went up. So I did a lot of stuff wrong initially. And because I did things wrong, I was able to guide another young black officer that was in my battalion to do things the opposite of the way I did things. So I was like his overwatch. I could watch and he had a shitty company commander. Hmm. Sorry if you're listening to this, sir, but you were not a good company commander. Um, Like super shitty company commander. I'm going to talk about it before I wrap up this episode. But um, yeah, man, just watching his back and, you know, helping him from making mistakes. And like the lieutenants, me, him, Lieutenant Payne, We grabbed lunch together. You know what I mean? It was that kind of deal. Like, yo, it's lunchtime. Come around, grab everybody. We go eat together. We weren't doing that in the first group. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I I feel you, man. Like, I remember being excited to get my own apartment, you know, and uh, I came back from my first appointment and uh, I just, dude, I I was drinking a lot, but long story short, um, I shot my door. Cause I thought I was getting robbed and in the middle of San Diego and you know, I was a little bit, I was hungover or something or I woke up in the middle of the night having nightmares or something. I shot my door and I was like, I need to, I need to live with somebody, you know? And so I, and it was, you know, six, six months into a workup, six months after Afghanistan and um, my buddy who just finished flight school um, came to San Diego. So I was like, dude, please live with me, you know? And, and we made it happen and it was great. And I think, just being in proximity with your, your group, um, your boys is, is so valuable. And I, I think it like, I had to unlearn that because I was so excited to just have my own fucking place after, you know, sleeping in tents in Afghanistan or or having roommates or whatever. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that, uh, point because I think it's really important for people to understand how important it is to have people that you trust and, um, Want to you know live with uh, while you're starting out in the Marine Corps?
1: Um, if there was a common denominator to amongst the peer group I had when I came back, it was definitely the Naval Academy tie. Mm. And I'll tell you, man, when I when you're first going in the fleet, you don't want that stigma, right? They make it seem like it's negative. Like you're at TBS. Yeah. like how I many y'all went to a Naval Academy? I mean, you ain't want to, ha- you ain't want to, ha- you ain't want to raise your hand. You know, mm-hmm. but you you know you feel this embarrassment, so it's like whatever. But man, like. And I think and I've kind of talked about this, but when you've known someone like my boy T-Pain, OK, we boxed together at the Naval Camp. I was three time national champ. He's a three time national champ. At this point, I've known this man at least six years, maybe seven. You think he wants to see you fail? You know, he's right. competing against you, but do you really see do you really think he wants to see you pun it at the highest level? The answer is no. And my boy, Lieutenant Jones, the same thing. And I just feel like when you have people that know you, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, at this point, we all know each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that people can be envious of because they are going into this new environment and they don't have anybody to really know to that extent. And we're able to come there in this brotherhood and this connection, this sisterhood, and people don't have that. And in the civilian world, they sure as hell don't have that. And once I realized the power of that, I just knew Nan, that I had made not necessarily that I made a mistake because fate is inexorable. It works out the way it's supposed to work out, you know, but I understand why you should go with the Naval Academy peer group because mm. they are going to watch your back. Um, and that was real impactful for me. And I think, you know, not that everyone of those peers was Naval Academy, but the majority of us were. And so it set the tone for the rest of the group of like, yo, this is how we look after each other here. You know, mm-hmm. and it was just like, I mean, we think about that. You got guys in di- multiple battalions. They've gone through stuff. To, and I mean, multiple different companies, but they're all serving in similar roles. There was just this looking out for each other, man. And it was I definitely think that was like a tie in. And when I think about the people I live with, we were all black officers from the Naval Academy. So mm-hmm. now I had that group of, you know, gar- <laughs> my boy, who I'm talking about I'm fucking Captain Christian. Yo, I used to take yeah. his fucking uh, glow light. You know, you now you run out the house late. You're like, I can't find my gear. Boom! You see that? You, you know you see that poncho over there? Yeah, <laughs> yoke it up. Um, but yeah, man, it was just fun, man. Dog, we used to come home, man. Like I'd be in the field or something, or I come out the field, my boy would be in the k- cook dinner or something, and you walk in the house and you got dinner ready for you. Versus before, I didn't kind of have that. I was always trying to do everything myself, and so that kind of showed me this sense of like, man, let's let's lift and lean on each other. And have that support network. And I want my long term goal about that time too is to write a damn play about that house, a comedy. Because imagine five black officers <coughs> living in a house, you know, in fucking Camp June, North Carolina, where it wasn't even Camp June. It was like, was it Hubert? Pretty sure the KKK live out there. I'm not gonna say that. There's, I'm joking, y'all. I'm joking. Calm down. But there's definitely Confederate flags and biker gangs and all that kind of stuff. And here we were five black officers, you know, trying to make it.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think you should, first of all, I think you should write that play or that that TV show, but um, tell me a little bit about your, you mentioned that there was a lieutenant that you tried to kind of coach through some of the things that you went through. I don't know if you want to cover it now, but I'm curious as to how that, how that happened and how you think, like why, did, why didn't why did it happen for you at the beginning and and what kind of changed or how did that dynamic come through? Were you, did you feel, sorry, go ahead. No, I think for me, I'm just different.
1: You know, mm-hmm. I, I really think I am different. I, th- I really do think I'm just outspoken. I try to be as authentic as I possibly can. And this Lieutenant, his name is Lieutenant Jones, uh, Captain Jones now, probably Major Jones. I don't know, man. Uh, that's my boy though. That's all you need to know. And right off the bat, Right. Like you gotta understand, we were attorney brothers together. He's Naval Academy, um, infantry. And he was trying to go infantry when I was going through my hell. You know, so he's like, he's having his hell at IOC texting me photos of his feet and stuff. I'm like, I don't care. You know, I was like, don't go infantry, you know. But him and Jester, just like he said on the podcast, they went infantry because of me. So now they're following me into this thing and I feel the obligation that I pulled them in. I'm also responsible. And he ends up getting assigned to my same battalion. Right. And so right off the bat, what do you think starts happening? Anything he does, who does he get to? Man, you need to go get your boy, whatever. And right off the bat, like I knew his coming commander was on, excuse my language on some bullshit because like right off the bat, you know, I'm at him, I'm at a dinner with him and some of our frat brothers, some older gentlemen out in town And uh, he tells me, he's like, yeah, my CO is going to go inspect the barracks in the morning. He says, we don't have to go. We don't have to be there. And I look at him, I'm like, dude, your CO is going to see your Marines in the morning at 5 a.m. And he's telling you, you don't got to be there. I was like, dude, you need to be there at like 4.45. You know, he's like, but the CO said, you need to be there at 4.45. What do you think happens? He goes and he's there at 4.45 and what does the CO do? Oh, Lieutenant Jones, you can join us in the morning, I see. You know, but the problem was He he didn't tell his peers. Mm. And so all his peers got hammered for not being there. And so I had to let him know that was that thing. But excuse me, it was a lot of little stuff like that, you know, little tricks and everything that goes along. And then the other thing, too, was anytime he had a mistake, it would get back to me. Like I was responsible, like it was my fault. Like you need to go talk to your boy and you go talk to your boy. And so I just kind of was just checking on him. Nothing crazy, nothing major. But turns out this guy was a very, very competent Marine officer like very, when I say competent, like probably number one battalion, Mm. you know? But again, there's still all these little traps there. Um, And all I did was I just want him to to do better. I want him to be better than me. Um, And so, you know, proficiently wise, like just the way his brain and stuff works, he's just super smart and really good at what he does. Um, But just letting him know, he also had a support network there too. And we kind of played off each other as well. Again, strengths and weaknesses, right? He's very strong, like operationally, you know, in th- in that regard, I'm just more a social. I don't know, <laughs> like, yeah. that's my that's my thing. And he did really well, man. And I, I I'm not gonna take all the credit for it, but I do think like I'm in a rising tide lifts all boats. We make each other better.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, there's there's this kind of notion of competition that's very intimidating at first, and I think. A lot of us, you know, myself included, have kind of gotten caught up caught up with the desire to perform and outshine people or whatever. But sooner or later, you realize, like, the person above you and below you need to succeed in order for you to succeed. You know what I mean? And I remember, you know, one of the majors from uh, the Naval Academy told me at um, at, at TBS, like, if you don't make sure that your people succeed and, and the pers- your CEO succeeds, like you're going to fail no matter what, you know, and it's true. Like I always failed if my Marines failed and I also failed if my CEO failed. And, um, but you know, more to your point, like I think this, the sense of wanting to lift somebody up um, who have gone through the same struggles as you've gone, particularly your unique struggle um, in, in terms of, the unit that you were with, your CO, um, you know, being black uh, infantry officer, which is like, you know, extremely hard in any way. Um, but you, like, what made you feel like you had to help this guy out? Like, what was, what was it that, because I, I I guess what I'm saying is like, you've mentioned before that sometimes you've left people behind, right? And, and we've all done that. And I, I think I want to know like what made you change or what made you realize like you don't want to do that
1: again, I keep bringing it back to this 180. I did it before and it didn't work. You know, I didn't, I tried to avoid, I did not want the stigma of being a black infantry officer. Right. I just want to be a Marine officer. After that appointment, I said, fuck it. I'm a black infantry officer, you know? Mm -hmm. And you know what I did? All of his Marines knew me. All Mm -hmm. my Marines knew him and not just him. I mean, all the other lieutenants, like there wasn't this sense of like, oh, that's, that's just my Marine. You know, like, yo, If a Marine talked back to Lieutenant Payne or something, I'm like, listen, man, that's my guy, you know, like, and it was, and they could, the Marines could see it too. You know, they're like, damn, these guys roll tight, man. So like, you gotta be, you know, be careful. Um, and it was just kind of understood because you know how it is. Some officers don't want you talking to their Marines and vice versa, but like their platoon sergeants were my guys. Like we talked, we communicated. And so for me, it was just that sense of like, I had nothing to lose. You know, at this point, listen, I didn't care, Yoshi. I'm telling you, like, I didn't want to get my command photo. I didn't want to do the, uh, what's it called, career des. I didn't do any of that. I wanted to get out, you know. Mm -hmm. And so as far as I was concerned, I was just kind of biting my time. Now, Lieutenant Jones, the thing was, he knew he was good. That's Mm -hmm. the difference, too. So I was kind of like, I didn't feel confident in my abilities, you know, on, like, the operational level sometimes. Like, I felt like, I didn't feel like, oh, damn, I'm better than this, Lieutenant. I think Lieutenant Jones was like, I'm better and I'm going to. No, I think that that's that was like his mentality. And so when mm-hmm. you get two people like that together. Damn right. They're going to walk around. I mean, we we walked around battalion together. Like I go to his office. We're grabbing dinner. We're going to go do that. We're going to go grab lunch. Like we were always together. Like it was like being back at the Academy. You know, how you're at the Academy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I used to go to some dudes rooms like 30 times a day. You know, yeah. like a sitcom. It was like, uh, was it Seinfeld? What you knew that you saw? <laughs> Trailer. Kramer's always popping up or bruh man from the fifth floor or Martin always coming in through the window. Like it was, you know, at the Naval cabin, we we're always going to each other's rooms. Just like, it's like you go, you go get a sip of water, go to your buddy's room, go to the bathroom, go to your buddy's room, go for a walk, go to your buddy's room. It was the same time with these guys. Mm. You know, I was always walking around battalion, just boom, going to see buddies. And I don't know how people perceived it. I don't, I don't know. I didn't hear anything about it, but I know the first time I was very self conscious being a black officer, eating with none but black officers, how would we be perceived? Let me go try to, you know, socialize with my peers. Versus now, it's like, I didn't care. I'm going to see Lieutenant Jones. I'm going to see Lieutenant mm-hmm. Payne. We're grabbing lunch. Let's go. Um, and then that's just what it was. And I think, you know, for me, I was just coming from a different space. Like, I wasn't worried as much about the professional, represent- rep- rep- the professional reputation to the extent of oh, I'm going to put it at the expense of me hanging out with these guys.
0: All right, that's so it's kind of liberating, huh? Like once it's like, once you stop caring too much about what people are going to think, it's kind of freeing, right? To be able to be your own self and hang out with the people that you want to be with.
1: And my my mentality started changing. I was like, man, my CEO, and you know, we had our hard field ops and everything. It wasn't combat, but you know, the stale, heinous field ops, living in the <laughs> field, each and every, you feel like you live in a field 24-7 but man I start my confidence start going up with my CEO you know I start getting a little bit more confident in myself as an infantry officer I'm like damn if I had him before I might be like a I don't know IOC instructor or something you know just kind of feel like your your ambitions that kind of changed a little bit I feel like with him I feel like I could have done whatever I wanted you know just he made me feel confident as a as an officer you know just kind of how he talked to us how he i don't know, not to sound just poured into us leadership wise. You know, um, I mean, man, he like sat down with us and like, I mean, he made a habit of like making sure we were good, you know, talking through stuff. And again, 180 stuff. Marine, misses Dental appointment. Fuck, I don't want to tell the CO, <laughs> Hey, sir, I got to talk to you. Smoketelli, misses Dental appointment, you know, and I just took it. You know, Marine yeah. messed something up. I just took it. I didn't hide stuff from my CEO. And I think that also built trust, too. So no matter how bad it was, and I was like, I do not want to go bother the CO with this. You know, I got to go tell him, you know? And I just, again, I just made it a habit. Whereas before, after my CO blew up one time, I'm like, I didn't tell him nothing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And it's not the best thing to do. And I told you on that, that trip in Afghanistan of like how after that incident happened with the platoon sergeant, I just feel like I couldn't go to him with anything. I felt like that was a litmus test for me. So I felt like I had to internalize everything and how that played out, it just made me not want to do that again. So I always made myself tell him the hard stuff, you know? Um, and, you know, sometimes he's he's not like always a happy-go-lucky guy, so you definitely got the brunt of it, but just feeling like I could go in there and tell him what was up and what was going on in platoon, and he genuinely cared. And I think the first CEO cared, too. I'm not going to say him per he didn't care about the Marines. Just two different styles, and I think, you know, it's not that one style is the right way, just certain styles complement you know, other leaders better. And I feel like my CO, um, his style was a lot better
0: for me. It was what I needed. Mm. Now, so I, I think one of the things that I realized is like, while you're in the moment, it's kind of hard to observe all of these things. So to me, you know, I do reflect back and think about like, this was this was my experience with this leader and here are the things I took away. But like during the time, I was kind of still caught up in everything. Did you feel like you were relearning leadership and, and getting these things real time, or is this stuff that you've started to realize after, um, you know, all, all the stuff that you just talked about, is this, is this during or after? And how did that? No,
1: this, come was, this was real time because mm. my CEO now acted in a way that was 180 from my other CEO. Too. Mm. So I'm watching this and it goes back to what you're saying. When you're first coming in, to leaders, you don't know anything, right? This is your first company. You ain't got no litmus test. You can't measure it to anything. Then you get a second CO. And now it's like, okay, I got two COs. Now I'm learning a little different and, you know, getting to see that. And then the thing was, this is what got me, right? (laughs) So then one day I get called into company, the battalion commander's office, and he's telling me I'm getting platoon. He's like, hey, Lieutenant Steffman, you done real good down there in Bravo Company. We're moving you up to Capitone. And this is just before deployment, right? And now I'm having to have a little PTSD again. I'm (laughs) like, man, I'm just getting settled in. I got my crew. You know what I mean? We're we're good. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) Sir, please. (laughs) (laughs) Please, please, sir. But again, what am I going to say? No, I don't want Capitone. No, I want to go to weapons company, you know? And so... Now they moved me to weapons company right before deployment. And I got to start all over again, you know, yeah. new, new. Now these lieutenants, I did serve with some of them on the previous deployment, but our trajectory has just been a little different, you know, because cat platoon weapons company is like senior platoon commanders um, for those who are out there. And so it was just a, it was a more senior position. And so usually the guys that go to weapons company are the best in the battalion, you know, the ones with the most experience and, just the way the fleet works, like you shouldn't be a first lieutenant too long as a platoon commander, ideally, right? So they moved me up to cap platoon and it was just this sense of like, but I didn't want to start over again because it's like they constantly having to reinvent yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. It's just like, man, I got a great combat commander. I got a great, you know, unit, right? We got trust, we're supporting each other. And now you move me to cap platoon. And oh, by the way, the cap platoon commander who was holding it down, dude graduated like number one from TBS, you know what mm. I mean, he was like number one at IOC. They just didn't give it to him because they were like, oh, he can't be TBS and IOC, you know. So I'm now, I'm, and my boy, Lieutenant Jones, I'm gonna calm out on this. You know, he was like, yo, make sure your shit's tight. <laughs> you know, he's like, make sure your stuff's tight because now I'm like, yo, this guy is a beast, you know, and now he's gonna watch me. And, you know, I'm this high level because now we're shooting these. $50,000 missiles and you got to learn all over again. And I was just like, man, here we go. And right before deployment of all places. But again, I kind of, and I remember being very sad when I left uh, my CEO, you know, mm. and I just wanted to thank him for giving me opportunity and for, you know, really helping me find my leadership again. And, uh, you know, I was really sad to to leave, you know, but it's just part of, part of the experience. You know, you're always growing. So I got moved to Capitone and deployed to Okinawa as a cat platoon commander.
0: Yeah, I remember that. I saw you there. That's right. Yeah, we saw you. He was like, you're
1: a ghost, man. Yeah, Yeah, we ran into Yoshi in Okinawa. Me and another buddy of mine, uh, Harwood we all grabbed dinner together. Mm -hmm. And Hoshi's like, yeah, man, I'm getting out. We're like, what are you doing? He's like, yeah, I'm probably going to be a bartender. Uh, I was like, oh, well, um, paving the way for the rest of us, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, man. And Okinawa is a whole nother beast. But, um, when, so you you did you did cap platoon. So for people who don't know, cat you want to well, well, it's basically an advanced weapons platoon, right? And you have a, a bunch of different weapon systems that are are complex and and you have a kind of a different tactical approach to things or whatever. But basically, it's a whole new job that you had to do right after you did a workup with a platoon commander. So you did a, your deployment in Okinawa, which. I don't know how that was, but how, so talk to me about, you know, between deploying and then you got out soon after, right? Like,
1: Yeah. So, um, I went on that deployment and, uh, had a great cat. The weapons guys were great. Right. And I like to say the way my company commanders were, um, Bravo company commander, cause I was a Bravo one eight. Um, that company commander I rank at the highest, right. My weapons company commander, uh, you yeah, know, he, <laughs> You know, say no more. You know, it's like Voldemort. Was it Voldemort from, uh, I don't know, Harry Potter? Just, he was there. Now, was he leading? Was he inspiring? He was there. You know, Mm -hmm. sometimes you got leaders that sometimes can just be a body. Um, And then, you know, my my coming commander when I was in Afghanistan. Um, But there was really no teaching from this coming commander. He didn't, there was nothing. It was just kind of thrown in the wild, wild west. So having Mm. to learn how to use this new fucking Rocket, you know, like he's he's saying he's asking me to explain about cat. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm so far moved. Combined anti-armor team. So think of it just a bunch of mounted vehicles with heavy weapons on it, you know, Um, and I was of this thing, toes yeah. and uh, expensive stuff. And this is a battalion asset, which means when you fire these weapons, it's a lot of visibility to say. And so when I was on deployment, man, I'll tell you, this is when I got my balls as a lieutenant. And I'm going to tell you this story. And this goes back to one of those coming commanders I talked about, who I didn't think was a good leader. So uh, when I was in Okinawa and we were deploying to the Philippines, um, I was part of two CAT platoons, CAT 1 and CAT 2. Well, the CAT 1 platoon commander got injured um, during some training and he couldn't go to uh, the Philippines. So I had to take all the CAT platoons by myself, so CAT-1 and CAT-2. So we just had one giant CAT unit. Now mind you, I just got moved to this unit, right? They've never seen me go out into a training exercise, a legit training exercise with this unit. And now we're deploying to Balakatan where we're training the Filipinos. And so I know we're gonna fire these TOW missiles. And at one point during um, that operation, I was briefing the tow battle drill, which means I have to basically, we're going to fire these very expensive weapons and that if these things go south, people are getting fired. <laughs> it's pretty much pretty much what it comes yeah. down to. This is a very visible <laughs> asset. And I already know I got the stigma from Afghanistan. They're like, all right, we moved to 10, step up to play with the big boys. Can he do it? And I'll shit you not, man, um, because this was a peacetime-ish unit, right? We weren't going to Afghanistan. This deployment to uh, the Philippines was like, you know, the battalion commander was treating it like a like an Afghanistan deployment, you know, yeah. but he was using it as an opportunity to really train the lieutenant and put the pressure on. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I mean, this was no there was no games. Right. He's very focused. We're serious. And so he was pressing all the lieutenants because he knew this was a good train opportunity for them. So I say and say we do these what are called confirmation briefs. where We break down what we're going to fire with our weapons, the ranges we're building, and everything and fucking lieutenants are getting slight. You know, battalion commander, yo, yo, she time commander, <laughs> lieutenants out, confirmation <laughs> briefs less than right. Come back and oh, re it. Come back and re it. And this one company commander was so embarrassed because one of his lieutenants was going right in front of me, right? And it was his one of his better lieutenants. And he got kicked out of a confirmation brief. You know, mm. he didn't pass it, right? And it's not good when you don't pass a confirmation brief. Um, but I think this battalion commander was just having the pressure on him that day, and so mm. Um, before I went in, you know, I'd ask the lieutenant, hey, can I use your laptop to brief? You know, he's like, yeah, no problem. Well, after he got kicked out of the confirmation <laughs> brief, his commander was so embarrassed, he tried to throw me under the bus and said, mm. uh, hey, lieutenant, he told lieutenant X, uh, can you get our laptop? And he's like, oh, lieutenant Stem is going to use it. He's like, no. And he looks at me, the commander goes, PCCs and PCIs. And mind oh. you, the battalion XO is like taking a piss, right? Mm. So, I am about to brief an order in front of battalion commander to fire these expensive ass weapons that legitimately can get people killed. Right. And I just got, I got a scramble in between the CEO using the restroom. Right. So we scramble, you know, me guns helps me get set up and they set up the, 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 computer and I brief my order. And I, one thing I didn't talk about was when I got to cat, I had a fucking awesome platoon sergeant. Mm. Um, Again, this is when I say I had a bad platoon sergeant. Now I can see because I've got like three different. I didn't talk about my Bravo platoon sergeant. He was good. But my cap platoon sergeant was the fucking man, you know. And so when I got up there to brief that order, like strengths and weaknesses, you know, CO tried to hit me with something about water. Like how many, how'd you come up with that number of cases of water? Platoon sergeant stepped in, crushed it. We fucking nailed that confirmation brief. You know, Mm. it was one of them things after we got done briefing, you know, they were like any questions? They looked around the room. Everybody was like, no, we're good. We're good. I remember walking out to see. I remember walking out that tent, fucking chest bumping. You know, I'm chest bumping my platoon sergeant. I'm like, yeah. And I was so fucking mad at that CEO, man. Because I'm thinking if I put this confirmation brief, I can get fired. You know? Mm -hmm. And my career is done right there after all that. And this CEO tried to throw me under the bus because he was embarrassed about one of his lieutenants. You know, and this is when I got my balls as an officer, you know, because I always heard the stories, you know, where they're like the platoon sergeant's like, I told the CEO, I told the to go, I, heard, I told the sir to go fuck himself. You know, <laughs> you know, you hear these stories, you're like, you didn't say that to the CEO. Well, man, I was hot, man. I was like, you not like we want to fight somebody, you're like, pace, mm-hmm. you know, and I saw this CEO, man, and I saw him over there eating chow and fucking, I was just, I was so mad. I finally went up to him, I was like, sir, I got, can I talk to you? And we went for, I was like, I pulled him aside, went for a walk. I was like, sir, and mind you, the, my boy, Lieutenant Jones was in his company that I've been mentoring and helping out and all his platoon, everybody knew. And I said, sir, I was like, do you is there something you have against me? I was like, because I've done nothing but been supportive of you and your lieutenants, mentoring them, everything like that. And then we get in this confirmation brief and you try to throw me under the bus by pulling your laptop right before I'm briefing. I said I could have got fired. You know, over that, all because you're a lieutenant, whatever. And he apologized. He was like, wow. on, lieutenant. I just, you know, he's like, there's going on. Basically, he did it to make my coming commander look bad. That's what he was mm-hmm. looking for. He was gonna sacrifice me on the altar to get at my coming commander because he was embarrassed that uh his lieutenant got kicked out of a confirmation brief. And the thing that bothered me the most about this, and this is one of them things, and I know it's like, it's only like a small percentage of the Marine Corps, but you know, when you go to the Marine Corps museum, you know, and they play this little video and the Marine is like, we had that last canteen of water. We you know? He's like, we shared yeah. that water. If we had child, we shared that child. And I'm like, this motherfucker would not let me use a laptop, you know? And it's just like, it's, it's, it's mind boggling to me in this sense of like sometimes what we sell on this leadership side, but what's actual reality. And I hate that. Yeah. And it's just not the military. I mean, it's anything in life, fuck fraternities, corporations, whatever, you know, we get sold the dream. Then you get hit with the reality. But the fact of being in the Marine Corps and getting sold this, you know, we share the last water with each other. And yet here we are battling each other over the pettiest of things and to me, that was just, like, unbearable for me, you know? But when I called him out on that, I found a level of confidence in me I didn't know I had. And after that, it was smooth sailing.
0: Hmm. Wow. No, I mean, dude, that's great, man. Like, I, I just I just think about it because, you know, I know when we go to TBS, we think captains are gods, right? And they're, like, the SMEs on everything, they're badass, whatever. And you get to the fleet – I mean, even at TBS, like I I felt this too a little bit, but like they don't look out for you sometimes, you know, and it's just a fact and, 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 and they do, they pull bullshit like that. Um, And then when you become a captain, you understand why, because there's lieutenants become captains, right? Like we're all the same people. And I think the, the fact that you went up to this guy and said, you know, why did you do what you did and called him out on it is really powerful because we don't think about doing that when we're second lieutenants, you know? And even first lieutenants, we we sometimes don't. But like the more that you get kind of <laughs> maybe sick of it, the more maybe emboldened you get. And I think and I wish I definitely wish I'd called out bullshit more when I was in, you know, whether I was a lieutenant or a captain. But a lot of times this rank um is, is such a barrier. And I think it's important to realize that like Everybody's, every officer has been a second lieutenant, you know, every officer has been a first lieutenant and we forget that a lot because um, that's just how we're trained, you know, and we we, are afraid of, of being that. But I I do like the idea of you becoming freer once you've confronted it, you know, I think that's really, really, uh, really good. Um, So you said smooth sailing since then you finished Falco what well, what was next? What's like the, the ending chapter or the ending footnotes for, for your Marine Corps career?
1: Man, I, uh, you know, I finished up that time and then we got back from that deployment. And I'll tell you, I had an opportunity to do some JLTV training, which was like the new, uh <laughs> that's a whole nother story. Uh, not a bad story, but just in a sense, uh, we thought we were going to do this 96 hour, tested out some vehicles and then haha it was Afghanistan all over again, <laughs> you know, with role players and everything. Mm-hmm. Four days and no sleep. And the Marines were like, what is going on? But uh, I did that. I came back from Okinawa. I did the JLTV training. And um, actually, before JLTV, the battalion commander, man, he asked me. He was like, Tennis um, Steb, you've done real good here. You know, appreciate the work and stuff you've done. And he's like, what do you want to do? You know, because, you you know, I picked up captain. I got slated for captain um, while I was out there. I don't know how because I didn't send my photo in, but I got slated for captain, whatever. Um and so, you know, usually what happens is the Marine Naval Academy is in a weird position. Right. Because if I'm not mistaken, you she like most officers rotate every after three years or something. Right. But mm-hmm. we have the five year Naval Academy contract. We kind of got this weird limbo year, you know, and I was like, the, the, the sir was like, what do you want to do? He's like, I can see you in a battalion or regiment, which is like another just desk job. And I got to meet new people and get slayed. Or he's like, you can stay here and i was like well sir to be honest i wouldn't mind staying here and mentoring other lieutenants you know being available and whatever and so he put me in ops um and let me finish out my time basically it's like you know i was like the ops something was it 3 zulu something yeah the 3 alpha or
0: the zulu yeah
1: but they were so okay. man they were so supportive man like i was there you know i helped out when i could i was oic i did all that kind of stuff but at least i didn't have to go start over and, and meet some new um, company. But the thing was, my old Bravo company got slated for that JLTV training. Mm. CEO asked for me by name to go with them on that JLTV training. And so I got a platoon to go up against uh, in a vehicle. It was like, Oshka- I don't know. We had all these different vehicles from vendors and we basically went up against the army op four out there testing out these vehicles. But I got to go with my Bravo company platoon, you know, and we all had, vehicles and everything. And so it was, uh, it was super dope. And it was cool to be able to go out there and do one last hoorah with my yeah. and I actually got pinned captain at the end of that training. And it's funny. Cause I got the, I got the, the, when I got, um, uh, the promotion, to captain, you know, they wrote it on like scribble paper and we had been out there. It was a heinous, like, you know, sometimes just training, this was like LARPing at the max. This is, I mean, you mm-hmm. guys make airsoft people look crazy. You know, what I mean, it was like a legit scenario that they set up for. Us. So we thought we we're just testing these vehicles out. Then we find ourselves in this situation. And uh, but at the end of it, man, we we're all exhausted and tired. And then I found out I was getting promoted to captain. And I was like, the Murray officers get promoted is kind of weird. Right. It's like, you know, you just kind of walk off in the distance and you come back with rank on. I didn't want to yep. do that because we had just we had basically been through this jail TV thing with the Marines. And I want to get promoted in front of them. And I wanted my CO, Captain uh, Bravo Company Commander, to pin me mm. and the CO to pin me for giving me the opportunity. And so I basically did the enlisted promotion ceremony, you know, um, where I had them pin me in front of the unit. And I'll tell you, man, I almost cried when I was I almost got I was choking up when I was talking to the Marines, because I think at my lowest point, I never imagined I had any kind of future left in the Marine Corps. And I mm. felt like I did the best with what I had and what I've been given. And so for me to, I don't know, be considered a captain in the Marine Corps is just very impactful. This ain't the army, you know, army just hands out Mm -hmm. rank left and right. And I just feel like, and especially like I wasn't coming commander, but when you're an infantry officer and people see them captain bars, there's just a different level, you know what I mean, Yoshi? Um, Mm -hmm. and it was just very impactful for me. And so that was just very, very powerful Mm -hmm. and I got promoted to that and then, uh, Started looking at uh, transitioning out. I still had probably about like six months left at that time and started uh, debating between, do I want to go to graduate school in Texas? You know, that's what officers do. They get out and go to graduate school, hide from the real world. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm throwing shade because Yoshi's thinking about graduate school, Um, (laughs) y'all. But deep down, man, I had this dream of working at an inner city boxing gym, you know, doing my passion for for boxing and starting something that mattered. And so I was kind of torn between... Do I get out and basically go to graduate school right away? Or do I move to the inner city and launch a boxing gym?
0: Hmm. When did you know, like, this is, I'm done. Like, I'm not doing the Marine Corps. Like, well, was there a particular decision point or was it kind of since, since Afghanistan or, I think a lot of people have that moment, but what was your moment if there was one?
1: It was when I was in Afghanistan the first time. Um, I was, I just remember, man, we were kind of going up against it. You know, I was doing the patrol base ops dealing with, you know, nonsense. Right. Um, cause you just deal with war is just going to be just stupid at times, you know? Um, yeah. and I just remember, man, I would be in my patrol base, man. And I read two books, right? I mean, I read a lot of books on that deployment, but these were two books that changed my life. The first book was a book called Matterhorn by Carl Marlantis. And my boy yeah. T-Pain told me about that book early on and I didn't listen to him and read it. And then I got on my Kindle, I read in Afghanistan. And I was like, Holy shit. I had mm. never read a book that spoke to me as an infantry officer, like Matterhorn and Matterhorn is a book. It's a fiction novel, but it's based on a platoon commander's experience in Vietnam. So the the dynamics between company life and, battalion and the relationships there. And then these guys being in Vietnam and you know they're taking ground, but they're not maintaining it. They're leaving it. And all the nonsense goes like that. And I just remember reading that book and being like, bro, this was Vietnam. It feels exactly like today. You know? nope. And that really hit me, this sense of like, this is a machine. This thing isn't changing. And the second book I read was Angelo Dundee's My View from the Corner where he talks about mm. founding the Fifth Street gym And his experience as a boxing trainer and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, carrying the spit buckets and working with Muhammad Ali and all that kind of stuff. And I just remember after reading those two books that I was so drawn to the Angelo Dundee story, that building the gym and carrying the buckets and working with fighters. I was like, that's what I want to do. You know, I don't want to end up like the dude in Matterhorn on some Kazovac ship after getting blown up and. Another you know, thing, and then that's the other thing too. Is like when you're in Afghanistan in war, it's like, is this what you want to be remembered for? You know, did I want my legacy to be remembered as you know, Mike Steadman, Marine officer in Afghanistan, or infantry officer? And if I got killed, what would my legacy be left on the world? And not to downplay, you know, what that is, is being an infantry officer, but it's just like I didn't want that to be my ending legacy. I felt like I still had more to give, and so in my mind, I felt like, you know, the Marine Corps, I would do that and then, um, you know, probably, you know, pursue my passion for boxing at
0: some point. Hmm. No, that's great. I think, I think everybody has that moment and and unfortunately yours was like super early into your career, but, and you had to go through and after three years, but it seems, you know, obviously that it got better as you went and you got more confidence. Um, I know you know we're coming to the close of your Marine Corps career. Do you want to talk about getting out um, to end this off, or how do you want to? How do you want to end this?
1: I kind of want to reflect. How about we do this? Let's kind of reflect back on you know the whole thing, the the experience of this always faithful thing, and why do we? I mean, I want to your your I want to hear your perspective, Yoshi. Why do you think this is important, especially now?
0: That's a good question. I think I think the main thing that I'm interested in is people's stories, um, not the stories that were told, but the people that, you know, when lived through it, like, I think it's really important to understand your perspective. Um, because there's a lot of, like I said, like your last, your last podcast, there's so much common things that we can relate to. Um, and you have a lot of experience and you have the art of storytelling, which is, you know, something that's not shared by everybody but i think um at the end of the day like we we are our stories you know what i mean like that's what people are going to remember us for um and you know there's there's some saying by somebody i don't know who it is but they say you know you die twice the first time is is when you die and the second time is when somebody utters your name for the last time you know and i think there's a lot of things that we've done in our lives that we we do want to keep keep alive. And this is one way to do it is to tell the story and and tell it with, you know, truth and power. Um, I'm, I'm really reflecting on my own learning of people's experiences, right? Like, it's kind of odd that I only know about war from the perspective of people that, of color after I went to war myself, right? Like, I never read a biography or a, a history book about non-white you know, army units or officers. Um, and so to me, it's important to highlight the fact that the veterans are not a monolith. Like we do not all think the same. We're not all the same person. We don't have the same tattoos and we don't have the same stories. Um, and and so when somebody thinks of a Marine officer, you know, or even a veteran, like what, what do they imagine? You know, and I want that imagination not to be the same thing for everybody you know what i mean i wanted to be mike Stedman. i wanted to be miko yoshida i wanted to be you know all the other guys that you've mentioned um and so i'm i'm thankful that you're doing this this podcast because it's part of that it's not my story but it's like part of my story you know what i mean like i know you but also i just feel like it's it's such a richer account of everything that we've gone through um And so I don't know if that answered the question, but. No, it did.
1: And you're right. And that's the point I'm trying to get to is like black history is American history. You know, Mm -hmm. Native American history is American history. But the problem is we don't give these histories enough space, you know, to tell their truth and speak their truth. And so we have to niche down until you guys learn it, you know. And for me, the important thing about this is like I've worked when I transitioned out of Marine Corps. You know, I worked at a private school for three years, lived in a giant residence hall um, at a private school in town that carried a young uh, man of color, all boys, called St. Benedict's Prep. And, you know, I think for me, I, you know, when people see you successful, right, you're successful, okay? You know, I was building an Ironbound Boxing Academy. I'm working with kids, whatever. But one of the things that always bothers me is this sense of like, Yo, they think that other kids, when they see us occupy these spaces, as if it was easy. You know, as if we just I just you know, everybody's now they're like, oh, Mike Stebbins, a good dude. Mike Stebbins, a good dude. Mike Stebbins, I get fucking shot at to get considered a good dude. I had to go to Afghanistan. You know, I had to go through all that hell and all that kind of stuff. You know, fucking pledge of fraternity. I mean, if you only knew what black people have to do to sit at the, the table or get seen as good. And whatever, right? It will blow your mind, but you guys don't know this stuff, and I'm not saying you guys, I'm just making a general statement here, but people literally don't know what has to get poured into us for us to succeed at the highest level. you know, the organizations we have to join and all this kind of stuff. And so when I'm sitting there at this private school, and I got this this kid in Newark that doesn't come from my network, you know, that doesn't have uh a, a, a friends like mine, right? And I am I gonna sit there and lie to him and tell him, you know, that oh it's just so easy, you know, and I know the pathway I had to go through to get to where I'm at, you know? And am I gonna send him down that pathway? And my honest answer is fuck no, I'm not. I'm gonna create a better pathway, you know, because I don't want I don't want young men of color to achieve the level of success I've achieved and have to do it my way. I want them to have to do it an easier way, but I also want them to still have grit and resilience, which I'm able to help them cultivate through boxing, you know? But I don't want these kids out here to think that, that you know, they have to go through all the the, the, the demons and all this kind of stuff we have to go through as people of color in this country to succeed. I wanna change that narrative. And so part of why I'm doing this show and speaking this truth is because I'm creating my own space. Like I ain't speaking for all black veterans, I'm speaking for me, right? But what I'm telling y'all, y'all aren't gonna do Do not throw me in that far right, um, whatever you want to call it, you know, and say that they're speaking for me because they are not. You know, and I I believe leadership means standing in line of fire and I back up everything I say. And so I proudly put my voice on the line and say, this is who I am. This is what I believe. Right. And you can comment on Facebook. You can do it on social media. You can do all that kind of stuff. I'm going to go public with it and say this is it. And when I kind of view my experience to uh, Yoshi of talking about getting relieved in Afghanistan, that's like my eight mile moment, you know, where Eminem is on it. He's like, I am white. I am a fucking bum. I do live in a trailer with my mom. You know, it's like, Hey, I got relieved in Afghanistan. So what, if I run for office, you're going to call me out on it. You know, you hmm. try to take, you're going to try to discredit me. I already told you it. You can listen to it on the podcast, you know? And so just kind of getting out in front of everything and taking my space back.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's really important to to highlight. And, you know, this notion of success, I think, is something that we as Americans struggle with, right? Because I, I, I've heard so many times over and over, like, if you're a minority, if you're a woman, whatever, you just have to be the best. And then and then people can't talk about you, you know? But that's that shouldn't be true, right? Like, that just means the system is messed up and we need to challenge these standards, like, to understand... You know what? You know everything from foot reps to SAT scores or whatever. These all these artificial, um, you know, notions of success. And I think what what you're what I'm getting from you is like you don't. Number one, you don't want people to go through what you did to have to be called successful. But number two is like you speaking your truth, you being vulnerable, you you being you know the way that you are and expressing and creating your own space is your definition of, of success. Like you're blazing your own uh, metric, if you will, you know, and I think that's that's what's important. I think people are too caught up with you need to go to business school, you need to make a certain amount of money, you need to have a this size house, you know, and and, and all of those things will bring you success and happiness and I think that's not where we are, right? Like, um, we're creating our own success, or you are at least. So that that I really appreciate and I think, you know, I'm really looking forward to what you do next or what you continue doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, this is, this is great. Like, I think, I think there's just so much more that you have to offer that, um, you just need to keep doing this podcast.
1: Not just me, man. We're going to do it together. Like I said, yo, I, yeah. I am American history. You are Mike Stepman. We are one. You, know, mm-hmm. you don't have Mike Stepman without, without Miko and, uh, Vic Cologne and all the people that looked out for me, um, and still continue to look out for me before we, yeah. before we close it out though, Yoshi, I want to give you an opportunity because, me, you've seen the emails we get. You've seen the emails I get because I forward them to you. Yeah. What do you want to say to listeners out there who might be listening to stuff we're talking about and feel a little slightly uncomfortable? Because you're a lot, yo, know, yo, Yoshi's ready to go. He's like a pit bull, man. I get these emails. I send Yoshi. Him and Mike Lloyd are like, Mike, let me respond. I'm like, no. <laughs> right, let's just let them live. But I do think it's important because as people start to understand what it means to sit in on these conversations as an observer, mm-hmm. And not a participator, you know, I just want to I want to give you opportunity to, to, to share some words of wisdom to people that are generally curious, but they've never been made to feel this kind of way about their institutions and their understanding of history and, you know, with everything that's going on.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think this is something I struggle with a lot, Mike, because I constantly reevaluate my past and it's 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 not healthy to do that all the time. Um, but I will, I, what I will say is it's okay to change, right? Like it's okay. And in fact, it's really important to change. Right. And you said it before, like Muhammad Ali said, if you're the same man you were, you know, when you're 20 as, or when you're 50, as when you were 20, then you haven't really lived a life. Right. And I think the, the idea of, being able to challenge our own assumptions is really important. And the first step to that is listening to other people's stories is listening and like doing it with an open heart and open mind. Um, and it's really hard to do when we have kind of been indoctrinated in a certain way of thinking. And, um, I, I wish for, you know, people to have, um, <laughs> I, I don't want to say this the wrong way. So let me, let me think about this uh, real quick. I think that a lot of times people come into other people's spaces with their own solutions when they're not even listening to the problem, you know? And I I don't know if I I characterize that the right way, but um, there's this assumption that there's data out there and we're all looking at the same data and we're all looking at the same problem. And, and for some reason we have a problem with other per- people's solutions. And that might be the case at times, but the pro- the fact is like, there, the data is not all there, right? Like you haven't listened to the stories. That's my point is like, you literally haven't listened to the stories. You haven't looked at other people's perspectives. And I think, and I've done the same for so long that I feel ashamed of it. But at the same time, I find enjoyment and fulfillment in, in learning, um, about my own history and about other people's history. So as a long-winded way of saying, like, you need to come into the conversation with with an open mind and, you know, talk as if we can just commiserate. And it's like the lieutenants, you know, that you live with. Like, we just, you work and live together and have chats and um, be people. And I think we just forget a lot of times to be people. So... I don't know if that really made any sense. But no, I did. And you, have I mean.
1: <laughs> lost, you've lost some friends off of your off of your confession, right?
0: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And you know, it's it's um, it's hard. I like somebody told me the other day, like, don't abandon your friends, and I, and I think that's that that is also really important because friendship is it's not something to get easily, you know? And so I'm right now I'm thinking about how do I have these conversations without political, you know, inflammation, you know, or um, just taking things really personally. Uh, and it's really hard. So once I, once I know the solution, man, I'm like I'll let you know, but I'm, I'm still figuring it out. Um, and, you know, I guess my question to you is as you close out, always faithful, this at this point, you know, you have like 10 hours of audio on your experience. What, what's your reflection and what's your takeaway and what do you hope that people get out of it?
1: Man, that's a good question. I think for me, again, this is going to serve as a great foundation for anything I do next, you know? So I don't think I'm coming out of left field, not that I'm attacking the Marine Corps or some of these or nothing, but like, again, I do think we are absent of the, veter- the Black veteran's voice in a lot of spaces, you know, um, and I want to occupy it and I want to create dialogue and I want to write and I want to speak about it. And I want to talk about everything from criminalization, uh, you know, the cannabis industry, mass incarceration, uh, uh, I mean, everything. Right. And I want to do it again from the perspective of a black veteran. I know a lot of people out there don't see color. Well, I want you to see me. That's not, ne- I'm not saying that in a negative way, but I'm saying I'm a, I'm a black veteran. I view myself as a black man. Right. Um, and I don't want to hide from it. I don't sugarcoat it. And I want to have conversations about it from my perspective. And, uh, in order to do that, I thought it was very important for me to lay a foundation, you know, so people understand where I'm coming from. Um, and again, you know, the thing that's beautiful about podcasts, and this saying a soundbite, you know? Like, oh, you know, again, the laziest thing, I say this all the time, the laziest thing you can do is tweet, right on Facebook or whatever. Come on here and record 10 hours of audio about your personal experience or something. And not to mention all the other episodes we've done. So my intent is to use this as a building block to communicate with the culture, speak on behalf of the culture from a veteran, you know, and let our brothers and sisters out there know that, hey, we support them. My white brothers and sisters, too, it doesn't matter. You know, we're all American at the end of the day. But I will tell you, you know, there are some things I want to address, such as post traumatic stress in the inner city and how a lot of these young men and women of color see these violent crimes at an early age, but nobody gives them a pass for PTSD, you know, when they're acting out on behalf of it. And I want to be able to have these conversations. And in order to do that, I just felt like it was important for me to uh, build my foundation. And so um, I'm just very thankful for it. I'm thankful for Yoshi. I'm thankful for Colonel Hobbs. Um, And y'all be nice, Colonel Hobbs, man. You know, that's another thing, too. It's real easy to criticize. Listen, we've all been in positions of power where we could have done more. But at the end of the day, man, some of y'all are living in the past. Have a growth mindset. Because I feel like a lot of the criticism, too, is from people that haven't moved forward. You know? And at the end of the day, right, that's the thing we can't do. What we can't do is discredit people all the time. And that's when we get this cycle. So, you know, just... Man, I just appreciate everyone. I appreciate you again for, I mean, I hit him up at the 11th. Hour. I was like, I got to get this show done. It's been four weeks. Let me close this thing out. And I'm just very thankful and happy I was able to do it. And I'm excited now to talk about the stuff I really want to talk about, which is um, being a social critic.
0: Awesome, Mike. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to hear
1: what's coming up too. So. Yep. And me, I, I'm doing this book, y'all. I don't know when it's coming out. Yoshi's yeah. Yo, pressing me right now. I'm just trying to get in the process of writing. And it's very hard, but uh, we're going to do this book, man. And I uh, got a lot of exciting stuff. I'm going to be announcing on the final episode of uh, this season, which is going to be episode 25. So I got two more episodes, y'all. And then I'm going to take a break and I'm going to come back strong, man. I'm about to, I found some, again, play the strengths. I need to batch these content. You know, I'm going to batch my contents. So you're going to have a really dope season coming up and uh, it's going to it's gonna drop every week and you won't have to worry about the gaps. But in order to do that, I got to get out in front of it and give the illusion of consistency. Uh, but I appreciate y'all for sticking with me this far. For everyone else out there, do me a favor and subscribe and support this podcast by giving us five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, for the show, to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter, You can also order some Real Dope Coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. We've got to start supporting our own businesses, y'all. Veteran-owned businesses, black-owned businesses, small businesses. We need your help. Mike and his team at Dope just dropped a hip-hop album called Spinach. Head over to Dope Coffee's website and purchase your exclusive Spinach merch pack. Also, be sure to check out ironboundboxing.org, where we build champions in and out of the ring. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing training, Entrepreneur education and employment opportunity programs for youth and young adults in low income communities. We are kicking ass in Newark, y'all. We built a free boxing gym for the community and also launched our incubator Thrive this summer. All of our programs are free to youth and young adults living in Newark, New Jersey. We're running another small business pitch competition this November where we're going to teach participants how to launch a small business and give them an opportunity to earn some cash prizes. If our mission speaks to you, we'd love to have you support our efforts. It's time to put your money where your mouth is. Posting and commenting on social media is one thing. Being bold and taking action is another. We could use your help. So donate today at ironboundboxing.org. Message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at at mikeatweareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network, rooting for everyone that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week black man beautiful black man i don't that feel nice man i love your brother black man and chase our trees, black man and get